I'm Cal Cates. And I am Kathy Ryan. Welcome to another episode of Interdisciplinary. In this podcast, massage therapy educators, practitioners, and positive deviants, Kathy Ryan and Cal Cates, we use research, science, experience, and always humor to explore the broad landscape of healthcare through a truly interdisciplinary lens. You'll always learn something, you'll always laugh, and you'll come away better informed and with real things you can do in your community and practice to create a more compassionate and collaborative system of care for all humans. Please be sure to like us and share us and use all your social media might. Leave us some reviews that involve words. We've been getting some nice ratings, but we'd love to hear a little bit more about why you listen to the show and uh, tell your friends, your family, your pets. Spread the word. Thanks for listening. And uh, now the moment you've all been waiting for, this week's pun. Just so everybody's clear, I'm going to put my glasses on. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of a sneaky <laughs> one. Yeah, yeah, that, did, that snuck up on me a bit. It took me a second. Right? Those are the best ones. You're like, where's the joke? Oh, oh. Uh, So, Kathy, what's new in British Columbia? Uh, well, uh, Canada just passed the major milestone of 1 million um, people infected with COVID, So, which doesn't sound like a large number, per se, compared to other places in the world. But, of course, our population is far smaller than the U.S., for example. So, that, uh, yeah, that's where we're at. Yeah, we're, um, we are seeing really predictable spikes in incidents, uh, particularly in states that have decided COVID's over uh, and have lifted all restrictions. And um, I was just listening to an interview with Dr. Rachel Levine last week on NPR, and she was saying, I get it. Like, I get that everybody's tired and we all just wish it was over, but it's not. And you got to wear masks, you got to wash your hands, you got to do all the stuff that we've been doing. And, you know, I, I feel like I keep seeing all these things, too, that flu is way down um, or was way down with everybody walking around with masks on. It's like, don't tell me masks don't work. <laughs> um, they do work and we have to keep wearing them. And and I think what we what we hate is that, like, there isn't going to be a when COVID's over, you know, and people keep talking about, oh, when it's over, we'll blah, blah. And it's like, it's really going to continue to be incremental and we're going to be wearing masks for a long time. So um, I feel like just continuing to hold that space of, I hear you, we are all fatigued and that doesn't make the germs go away. So we have to just keep doing it. Yeah. It's interesting. I have a, a number of teachers in my, my practice and all of them had, have said they're pretty surprised that they didn't get three colds this year. Yeah. Like they, like they normally would, you know? So I think it's been kind of an eye opener for some folks who are paying attention and I've had a number of folks say to me, you know what, going forward, I think when I travel, I'm just going to wear a mask on a plane now, you know, because yeah. I'm seeing that it does make a difference. And, you know, certainly I've reached out to family and friends and have said, look, I think we're heading into what's going to be potentially the worst of it. If ever there was a time to hunker down, now's the time to do it. Yeah. Yep. We will see what happens. I'm interested, too, to hear the perspective of our guest today. Uh, certainly, we don't want to go entirely uh, and spend our whole time in the COVID rabbit hole with our uh, incredibly interesting guest, but I hope we will get to talk about that a little bit. So um, I will let our guest introduce herself by telling us uh, what she does, and then we'll dive right into um, the fascinating world of uh, her work. Thanks for being with us. Hi. Good morning. Um, I have been, uh, I'm a nurse by education and for most of my career, I was a trauma nurse. And then I took a change into correctional health, which I really enjoy. And it's a whole new world. Um, I am the director of nursing, um, at a state facility and recently have been promoted to, uh, health services administrator which is a, a little bit different role. And it's interesting being a nurse in that role because I see both sides now. But um, it's fascinating to me listening to you talk about COVID in, in the community because that's a big issue in the um, prison system. And not all states are getting vaccines out to the inmates. Uh, and for a lot of reasons, um, some just come out and, say they don't think the inmates deserve it and my answer to that would be you may feel that way but because of the conditions they live in you're putting the larger community at risk by not vaccinating them and 
The second thing is, is they have been sentenced to whatever their sentence is and what their punishment is. Adding death by COVID, I think, is unfair. And they are sitting ducks in the prison system because of the way they live. They don't bring it to the community. The community brings it to them. And I, I think it's so important that we vaccinate them. And historically, um, the inmates do not want things like flu vaccines and stuff. Usually it's a pretty low rate, but they are very anxious to get the COVID vaccine. And uh, with education, I see even more and more wanting that vaccine, but it's going to be a struggle to, to get it to them in a lot of states, not all states, but a lot of states. And, and they still are part of our community. There's groups that go out on work squads as they get close to the end of their sentence. And um, I hope the public really considers that when they're making judgments about whether inmates should have the vaccine or not. Um, consider that they are coming back into your community, whether you want them to or not, in one way or the other. So they should really take a good look at that. That's what I have to say about COVID. I'm interested in here in Arlington, um, our local jail, the numbers are way down because of COVID. They have been trying to keep people out of the jail because of COVID. And I'm curious if you're seeing that where you are and, and kind of what you understand from the inside about that decision. And, um, you know, it, it certainly makes me wonder from a, a justice system standpoint, if we can if we can decide not to incarcerate people because of COVID, how come we're incarcerating those people when we don't have COVID? And sort of how does that, <laughs> how does that get decided? Well, and yeah, that's a whole, and that uh, you'd probably need to get someone who works in corrections to address that or, yeah. or the politicians. But I can tell you, from, from a medical standpoint, uh, and each state is different, uh, like I said, and the federal system's different from the state system and the county system's different. But on a state level where I'm at, I am not seeing that. But I also, um, where I'm at, I we still have a lot of um, men and women incarcerated under the old drug laws. And I know there's various groups working on that. But, you know, a 20, 30-year sentence, even if it was what they consider a distribution amount of marijuana, that really needs to be re-looked re at now. Yeah. And uh, we've altered these people's lives. Even if they are released now, if they remove the felony down to a misdemeanor, living incarcerated for 20 or 30 years alters the person you are and how you will live the rest of your life. So I think, um, I hope to see some changes um, in the future with right now with um, <clears throat> the politicians that are in charge in Washington to um, take a harder look at who we incarcerate and how we handle it. Because if you look at other countries, um, they provide education, a lot of education and a lot of um, opportunities. Once they pay their sentence, they have truly paid their sentence. In this country, you have not. If you uh, have certain felonies, when you get out, you cannot rent a house. You have no credit. You can't get certain jobs. And when I say certain jobs, I mean working in a warehouse for a grocery store. They won't let you, you know, because of the, the felony you committed. And sometimes these felonies, and I'm just speaking in general, and I'll speak to both sides of it. Sometimes these felonies might be a young girl out joyriding with her boyfriend. He commits a robbery with a gun. She goes to prison. She has a felony. She's 18 years old. At 25, she's a totally different person. You know, she's achieved some education. She uh, is working within the community. She understands what she did was foolish. Does she need to pay for that for the rest of her life? I mean, these are, these are just questions I'm putting out there for people to, to think about. And talk to people who have grandchildren this has happened to or their children that felt they were above that, that they lived in the part of society where that would never happen in their family. Well, when it does happen in their family, then they see a different view of it. And I'm just asking people to look at that. 
On the other side, I will tell you, having worked in the prison system, there are people there that should be there the rest of their lives. They have, um, they don't want to be part of a community. They really don't. Um, they think they can take whatever is out there for themselves and they don't mind hurting people doing that. Those people need therapy. Um, I don't know if they're getting the therapy they need in prison for that. And I don't know if the therapy will work. That's why I kind of stayed away from mental health nursing because I like to see a change. That's why I was a good ER nurse. I like to see a change. In mental health, the changes are so slow and so minute that it was not satisfying for me. Um, as far as health care, so in one way I'm fortunate, in one way I'm not. I work in a state where health care in the prison system is mandated to be um, the same health care that, uh, that meets the community standards, which is good, I think. Uh, on the other hand, the community standards aren't that great. <laughs> so um, I think uh, a lot of uh, prisons have uh, given the health care to private com companies, okay? And I think that that works because these are people that are experts at providing health care, and this is what they do and what they have done. And they know what it takes to get these things done. They have relationships out in the community when you need specialists for certain things. Because all of the diseases we get in the community, you get in the prison also. And the chronic illnesses. We unfortunately don't have access to the things uh, for chronic illnesses that um, disrupt the quality of your life. Such as, let me use low back pain. A massage therapist would be perfect for low back pain. Um, we have limited physical therapy, but in prisons, you cannot, you, you, we can't touch. I, as a nurse, can't touch a patient, like to bathe them. I have to have an inmate orderly do that because of, um, PREA, which is yeah. the Prison Rape Elimination Act. So that, that makes it tough, tough to do. Uh, I'm curious, you mentioned mental health and, and that you personally, that's not an area for you, but I know one of the big conversations, certainly in the last year, and if you are involved in correctional reform for a long time, has been there are people in the correctional system who really would have benefited more uh, specifically from mental health support outside of the prison system. and um, But that doesn't change the fact that you are caring for those people. And I'm curious, um, how do you manage that? And, and how much of that management is pharmaceutical? And, you know, what are the challenges that it presents when you have people who need services that you don't have to offer? So in the state that I work in, uh, and in my new role as a healthcare administrator, um, mental health comes under me now, so I'm learning a lot about it. So in the state I'm in, we have uh, specialty prisons. Uh, we might put all of our uh, HIV patients in one or two prisons, um, and that's for financial reasons. We get a better deal through the health department on medications. We might put all of our transgendered patients in one prison because it's safer for them. Um, we so mental health. So there's certain prisons and we call them camps are set up for mental health. We have a psychiatrist, at least one there. We have psychologists. We have licensed social workers that we call mental health providers. We have advanced practice nurses with a specialty in mental health. Uh, we have RNs with a specialty in mental health, and. They basically work Monday through Friday, nine to five kind of hours. So all of the staff is familiar with what they need to do if, if someone's suicidal, say, or tries to hurt themselves. Um, they can evaluate them uh, right away, and then they have access to get a psychiatrist, psychologist, whoever they need. And um, the officers are also well-trained, actually, in the state I'm in, in, in those areas. And they're first responders, by the way, too. Um, they do CPR. They use Narcan for drug overdoses and stuff. And 
it's interesting to me because the officers that work in these specialty camps are actually would make excellent uh, mental health providers. Some of them, um, they know they're the officers that do not incite um, the patients when they're in a crisis mode. They can talk them down, actually, and there's less use, uh, use of force to try to get control of them. And that's that's really nice. They have quite a bit of training on that. Um, I think, you know, there's all different types of mental health issues in there. Um, probably the hardest ones to deal with are the sexual predators. And it's it's uh, a lot of them are in denial. It's hard for the mental health workers to deal with them. They uh, need to meet with them frequently. And they have the right always to refuse treatment and not meet. Um, they also have a hard time in prison because the other inmates do not. Um, there's a hierarchy among inmates, too. So uh, that's a little rough, especially as they age, because then they physically can't defend themselves uh, from other inmates. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of rules in, in place in prison as to who is placed with who regarding sentence, age, size, weight. Um, so that the conditions are safe. And that's why we do separate um, their specialty prisons. Um, I think mental health in general is lacking in this country. We need a lot more of it. Um, sometimes, all right, I can give you a couple examples. Drug abuse. Someone just so high on drugs. They steal a car. They're shooting at a police officers, which is going to get them about a 25-year sentence right off the bat. They're young. They almost kill themselves. When they finally come out of all this and go to jail, they're amazed that they were even involved in this. Now, are they responsible for their behavior at 23 with the drug use? Absolutely, they are. But is prison going to change that? Should they pay um, some debt to society, they absolutely should. But wouldn't they benefit more from intensive drug therapy, uh, from uh, psychotherapy, trying to figure out why why they need these drugs? Because in my experience, anyone with a uh, substance addiction, and I'll include myself in that, food is mine, and I will, when I'm stressed, I can't eat enough. <laughs> and I am working on that, but um, I think we all might have some kind of addiction and we, we need someone to support us and help us understand what that is and find alternatives to work through that. I, there's a lot of changes I'd like to see in mental health in, in the community in general, uh, not just the prison. But, um, I feel right now that, um, we're offering the support, but it's also a stigma to the inmate to be getting mental health um, treatment. So they're reluctant on that part. They're also reluctant of who they're talking to. If I'm a young black male coming from a single family in a low income area, I'm not going to relate, you know, to a 68 year old white woman or a 45 year old white male who went to college at Harvard. I, it's just not gonna work. So it's also getting the right people in those positions that they can relate to. Uh, I'm fortunate I, in where I'm at. I've had a uh, assistant pastor who also has a background in mental health, and um, he has he really connects with a lot of the prisoners. He connects with them. He doesn't let them um, pull any games with him, and. He, you know, say someone says they're going to commit suicide because they're unhappy uh, with their housing situation. And that's the way to get out of it. Say, I'm going to commit suicide and then you're moved into a separate cell. But yet, in the same way, they want to talk about, you know, what they're going to do in a month when their wife comes to visit or their child or their mother. So they really aren't suicidal. Mm -hmm. They're using the system to get what they want. And you can't allow that either. It's, um, they have a tough job. It's all a balance. Um, going back to COVID, um, if you say you have symptoms of COVID, uh, you're moved to a separate place. And there's a lot of reasons you might want to be moved. You don't like your roommate. 
you are there's not no there's not money in prison, but people put money on your account and you trade sticky buns or beef jerkies or whatever, and you owe money for uh, drugs that you've secured. Uh, so now you need to get out of that situation. So how how do you do it? You say, yeah. oh, I have COVID symptoms and I get, you know, moved to a different place. So there's a lot of manipulation to get what you want. Everybody, everybody in there has a game. Even the best, most reformed prisoner, officer, nurse, everybody has a game. So you have to figure out what it is and how it fits into the system. You know, we think it's unique to the prison system when we sort of talk about it, but we all have, a game, you know, and it's a, <laughs> it's a smaller world there so you can really see the game. But um, yeah, I, I know that I just uh, renewed my orientation for some volunteer work I do in the jail here. And, and it is really interesting how, um, you know, I feel like I live in a progressive place and, and our sheriff is very progressive and, you know, the people who work in our jail system are progressive and still there are real, um, there are real blind spots in terms of how the, the people who are incarcerated are referred to and understood. And, um, you know, even sort of the most apparently kind and compassionate people working in the jail are, you know, will just say like, well, murderer or robber or, you know, drug addict. And it's like, Oh, okay. So this is a person who committed a robbery. This is a person who committed a murder. And even those little shifts, it feels like it's very easy to go, Oh, well, that's just a bunch of liberal junk. But you know, these are people like you alluded to earlier. We all want to believe that oh, this could never happen to me or anyone in my family. But then, like you said, when it does, you go, oh, maybe this is maybe I need to think about this differently. Um, so, I, I mean, yeah, it, the managing the manipulation and understanding. I, mean, I have a 10 year old and I'm like, does it really hurt that much? Or do you just know that if you tell me you're scared, I'll respond differently than <laughs> so we all figure out how to work it. And it's and that's a perfect example. Uh, it's learning to use the right words to say what you want. Does it hurt or are you scared? Yeah. And that uh, and I'll just go off track for just a minute. That's part of why I think we have the narcotic abuse program uh, problems we do right now in the ER when we passed out uh, Percocet like candy. When you came to the emergency room and said, oh, that my back hurts, my head hurts. Oh, okay, here's a couple of Percocet and 10 to go. Then when you look at it and you look at the research, if you take those same people and you look at, um, are they in pain or do they, are they scared? Which is, which is it? And if you can bring it in, it, they're, they're scared. The pain isn't that bad once you take away the fear. And if you can take away the fear, and there's been many different um, trials on that of um, anything from meditation to massage to uh, some type of relaxation technique with them, but they have to be willing to participate. And when you are that scared, it's hard to participate when you know that Percocet has helped you before. But again, really, how does that work on the brain? It takes that away, that fear away, not really the pain. As a massage therapist, I think many of us can relate to what you just said in that, you know, oftentimes we have people come into our practice with back pain, for example, one of the most common, and they've had family members who had back pain that was incapacitating or that whatever happened has altered their life in a significant way. And they may not know that it's just temporary. Maybe it's just a temporary thing, but that fear escalates their pain. And then after a session, because something has shifted in their pain experience and having a conversation with, oh, yes, I work with this issue a lot in my practice. And it's, you know, probably, you know, you're going to experience this after the session. You can see that just the relief you know, it just sort of washes over them as you have this conversation. You know, part of my work is, you know, and certainly I think a lot of massage therapists and, and other practitioners can relate is helping people to feel a greater sense of confidence in their own body that they haven't been, you know, uh, rendered incapacitated for the rest of their life, that this may be a temporary thing. And the other thing that I wanted to touch on, too, that you were talking about is, and, and again, as you're talking, I can see the 
um, the various issues that are being dealt with in the prison system are the same issues that we're dealing with as a society in general. Anytime we dehumanize a fraction of our population, we're going to see some of these issues. Well, and the other part to that, I was going to say, um, before I picked up on what Cal said, you know, with the verbiage, is um, the officers tend to call them inmates or murderer or whatever. And the inmates um, among themselves will say, oh, he's a murderer, he's a drug addict. What They, they do that. Uh, or um, And none of them, like I said, have any kindness towards a child predator. Mm-hmm. So in our policies, which sometimes I have to remind people, uh, we are allowed to call them inmate or mister. I always call them, I happen to work in a male prison, but I've been in female prisons. I call them miss or mister. Uh, as long as they are respectful to me, they're respectful to me. That's what I call them. I I use inmate only probably when I'm dealing with the security side. So they know who I'm talking about. Uh, we are allowed. Uh, we are allowed to um, do that. And that is a policy uh, on my side, on the medical side. I instruct all my nurses when I hire them. These are patients. That's what I want them to be referred to as patients, not inmates. And that's how they will be treated as patients. You need to be aware that you work in a prison. Unfortunately, uh, last week, there was an officer and a nurse killed in an infirmary. And you do, you do become uh, comfortable because they are people. And you are around them every day. You become comfortable. You think, oh, this person would never hurt me. But apparently it happens. You know, I'll admit myself, I feel pretty comfortable. And I also feel like mm, I can take care of myself. <laughs> but but you don't know. You really don't. So you have to be aware of that. Uh, but I truly believe this, that. of the people, if you treat them with respect and you hear them, and I all day long, I have patients slash inmates come to my office with uh, grievances of uh, they perceive they were wrong. And I can take care of most of them just by listening. I may not give them the outcome they want, but I can tell them why I can't. And I know they don't like to hear, well, this is the policy, but some, that's what it is. That's the policy. And that's the way we have to do it. And a lot of uh, people don't want to work through the system um, to get something accomplished. Like, say, you uh, want some dental work done. There, You know, we don't do cosmetic dentistry in the prison system. But if you're willing to work through the system with the dentist, and you and we can justify why you need a a cap or a bridge or something. And there there are rules and regulations related to that. And it takes time to work through it, but it can be done. But if you come in and you're nasty and cuss out the dentist and the the hygienist and everybody else and just write complaints, it's never going to happen. One of the really nice programs we have is called a boot camp, and they're from 18 to 25. They've committed very serious crimes. They have sentences of 10 years or more. And the judge, it's at the judge's discretion, but they can send them to this boot camp, which is six months, and it's like a military boot camp. And, I mean, they're up at 3 o'clock in the morning exercising everything else, and they cannot step out of line once. But if they go through this program and they um, achieve a GED, is another requirement, and learn some type of skill, bricklaying, uh, gardening, I think are a couple things we have. Um, not many young black men want to be gardeners, so that program doesn't go well. But the older guys like it. So um, then they get at their sentences truncated and they can serve the rest of their sentence on probation. And this is like a one chance only thing, but they have to be ready to understand that, that this is one chance. When you talk about programs where, um, you know, they're, 
obviously people have to make their requests in a reasonable way and things like this. And I, and I, I think about the, um, how, how, and what is your, uh, the system that you work in, are you doing, are they doing anything overtly to address unconscious bias and racism? And I mean, certainly by the time people come into the, um, prison system, that part of racism has already taken place. But in terms of how they're treated within the prison system, uh, I know that again, like here in my very progressive, uh, place where I live, we still have quite a bit of racism just sort of baked into the system. And I'm curious about how, uh, what you can say about that. I mean, certainly we could spend hours and hours more talking about just that, but. <laughs> well, um, they, actually it is uh, addressed and I'm in a very um, conservative, very conservative uh, part of the country. And uh, there is a lot of overt racism I actually sat in a tire kingdom one day and listened to a man trying to recruit two young men to the KKK, the local KKK chapel. Wow. I was um, totally amazed by it. <laughs> so, um, but I, you know, I think par part of how they do it through the state system is um, the promotions of um, minorities through the ranks as far as wardens and uh, colonels and assistant wardens. Um, I see less women than I'd like to see. It's a hard, hard job for a woman. But I am seeing it in my prison, women being promoted uh, and uh, minorities at the high, higher levels. And you might take your biases in also, but you also take in your background and your history. And if you're a black male that is a major and you grew up in a certain um, environment, you have some understanding with the uh, people that are incarcerated. And they also feel like, like I said, with uh, the therapist, that they can speak to you more openly than they can say myself uh i feel i'm pretty pretty liberal but when people look at me they just see an old white lady <laughs> so as they get to know me uh i will say that um they're very grateful to me i go out on the compound daily i you know they can stop me and talk to me about anything they can uh, make appointments and come up and see me i have an open door policy um as they get to know me, they know there's more to me than, you know, just the shell I'm wearing. So, uh, but that takes time. That takes time. On the, um, and yes, do I think that there's some, um, some racism in the prison? I do. In my particular facility, I don't see very much of it. But I know in other parts of the state I'm in, um, there's probably a lot. And it has a long history, uh, ugly history. And I do think that um, it's trying to be addressed, but it's hard when it's so ingrained, so ingrained. Think about trying to take the community you live in, Cal, and functions like in um, the outskirts of Atlanta and Georgia or someplace like that. It, I mean, and I'm not picking on anybody from Georgia. I'm just saying there's parts of the country that are not open to receiving everybody as an equal. They just aren't, women included. I still fight that a lot. <laughs> um, just recently, I, words were used to describe me um, that I was abrasive, autocratic, what else? And I, and I just, I had to stop it. I, I, had, I just point blank said, you have no idea who I am or where I came from. But I grew up in a time when I could not buy a car with cash in hand without my father's or my husband's permission. And now, because I know who I am and I own my space, you choose to use these words to describe me. And if I was a man, I'd be a great leader. And I just, you have to stop it. So whatever preconceived notion someone has about you, about your sex, your race, your religion, your politics... We need to be open and, and, and say, whoa, stop right now. 
and make people address it. I really believe I, I, I that's the one thing I learned from the Trump administration is that we can no longer be polite about these things. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's a good point when all those things are, um, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think people, we've have been having this conversation in the massage profession and even in healthcare and that, you know, what what do we do? And, and Healwell has actually created a couple of courses about how do you handle as a healthcare provider situations where you're witnessing overt racism, overt sexism, and, you know, that you feel like, well, you know, this is crossing a boundary if I sort of call someone on this, but it, as a fellow human, it's your job to call that out. And and it's your job to call it out in a reasonable way that's not argumentative, but it's also your job to not back down and appease when you know that really this is harmful language that's being used that's not helping us to move forward or take good care of each other. And that's hard to move out of, at least for me as a woman in the time I grew up in, because that's the way I was taught. Yeah. I was lucky to have a strong father who thought his daughters were great and could do anything. And that helped, um, helped me a lot, but still just the society I grew up in, um, it's been hard, but I, I owe it to myself and I owe it to those around me. And yeah, you can, I think no matter what the situation is, you can politely say, I'm sorry, but you know, what you said is wrong or inappropriate. And then if they, you know, some people want to create a, a fight or get ugly, then you walk away. But they will it will always be in their mind that you, you said something, you spoke up. And it's important. I spoke up one time in a bank one day. Um, someone was saying that Obama, you know, was really, you know, his whole birth certificate thing and stuff. And I just said, excuse me ma'am, you are wrong. I have my granddaughter here with me and I don't want her to believe that there are people out there, you know, that, that say these things that are untrue that cause this. And we got back in the car and my granddaughter looked at me. She was real quiet. And she said, Mimi, I am so proud of you. And it's important for her to carry that with her. It really is. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think this is one of the things we talk about with allyship is that it's, it's uncomfortable for you as as the person who's not being minoritized in that conversation to speak up, but that's even more powerful than the minoritized person speaking up. And, and it's not just the person that you're speaking back to, but that anybody else who witnesses that feels seen and feels supported. And, you know, like you said, your granddaughter was like, Whoa, yeah, that's right. When you hear something that's not true, you call it out in real time. And that's, that's, those are the little tiny ripples that help us to change those things. It does, and it, and it is uncomfortable, but that's why we develop good friends that we yes. can discuss that with and that you know have, have your back no matter yeah. what. Absolutely. And that's that's the important thing. Now, I'm curious, um, I, again, like this is another con- conversation thread that we could we could chase down for quite a while, but I really am curious about your perspective. I just recently read um, a paper that was put out by um, Impact Justice about, um, they did an 18-month sort of study of food in the prison system, and they, uh, they wrote a paper uh, that uh, I believe they called uh, Eating Behind Bars, Ending the Hidden Punishment of Food in Prison. And um, it talks a lot about how, you know, the prison systems, this is a place where money, a lot of money gets saved um, and at the expense of the health, mental health, physical health, long-term health of inmates. And I wonder, what do you see as someone providing health care for inmates that you think better food would (laughs) help with? Oh my gosh, don't even get me started on this. (laughs) So we have a uh, dietitian that you know, sets up the diet and everything goes through that. And um, I don't agree with it at all. Just say that right up front. Um, Is it nutritionally sound to keep you alive? Yes, it is. Mm. But that's all I can say for it. So, and, you know, all people have different needs. Um, And it's very, that's an area that really is a problem for me. Some people have peptic ulcer disease or gastroparesis, you know, where things don't move through their system quickly, uh, and they need certain diets. Well, they're not going to cater to that in a, in a prison system. 
and the diets are very limited. And I'll, I'll tell you quite frankly, I find them in the hospital limited. A diabetic diet versus a cardiac diet versus a regular diet is basically sugar or salt or no sugar or salt. I mean, really, there's not uh, artificial sweeteners are put on, which to me are just as bad. Yeah. Um, so let me take diabetics. So we have a lot of diabetics in prison. Um, you know, they're getting insulin twice a day, at least, probably some pills added with that. They have supposedly a diabetic diet. Like I said, it is not really any different. It is loaded with carbohydrates, which we all know are uh, a big problem for diabetics. Yeah. And a lot of beans, like you said, the diet is cheap. So much, so many beans. Oh my gosh. I don't know how I'd live with that. Um, then on top of that, is say you're a person like me who eats their feelings, <laughs> which I do. Um, and you have your canteen. If you have family or friends who put money into your account where you can buy canteen foods. So then I have the, uh, the, my, food director every month sending me a list of, oh, look at all these diabetics and we're paying them, you know, an extra 10 cents to give them a diabetic diet and look at their canteen list. Well, I guess I have the right to go in and cut off their canteen, but why would I do that? I, I, I try talking to them. We hold group meetings. Uh, we now have a wellness coach there. Um, but I'm not going to go in and say you cannot buy your 25 honey buns a month if that's what you need to satisfy yourself emotionally or maybe not what you need, but the only way you can. So it all works together. And I can tell you um, that we're probably not going to spend a lot of time in mental health working on your need to eat sweet things <laughs> when there's so many other issues. It, it's yeah. a very convoluted um problem as it is in the greater society uh the difference in prison is you have limited you're limited to how much you can do but it's really not that different when i think about it because money limits it for those on in the general community if you don't have the money to go get a massage or to go to a gym and work out or to eat the proper food or to see a therapist and it's that group of people that more than likely end up in the prison. So now it's doubled down. Um, it, it's an important point to note that it, the prison system is a mirror of the bigger system and that the same shortcomings we see there are just, you know, we have a smaller group of people who have, you know, sort of caved under the pressure of what it is to be out in the main world uh, and who uh, still in this country tend to have darker skin. Um, you know, we definitely see a disproportionate uh, rate of incarceration of black, particularly black men. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, that if you if you don't have the resources to make those choices that are healthy, and I mean, there are those of us who do have the resources who don't make those choices, but um, really undoing this sense of, I mean, I can't, I don't know if Canada has this, Kathy, but in America, we just believe that if you just work harder, you'll do better. You know, and, and it's just that's just not actually how it works. And, and I think even inside the jail, I mean, what I've seen is that it also doesn't work there. You know, I mean, you try to stay out of trouble, basically. Um, but as you know, our, our guest indicated that once your time is up, our society is set up to continue to guarantee that you fail. And that it's hard to get a job. It's hard to get housing. It's hard to and then there you are again in a position where committing crime is how you'll eat and how you'll find a place to live and you find yourself back in the prison system. It, it is, you know, the prison system to me appears to be a microcosm of the macrocosm. When you have a system that is, it has inherent, inherent and systemic inequities built into it, you know, and we can't, we can't manage these issues out in the greater society where let's say there's more, of an array of resources available, how are we going to be able to manage these issues well within the correctional system? Well, and especially when society in general doesn't want to pay to manage them. Right. Until it affects them. Um, you know, I've had the opportunity to speak with young black men um, a lot in this position about 
why they've made the choices they've made. And two things I noticed, drugs is an easy way to make money and support your family. And so many of them come from uh, a single parent family. And the mother does not object to the son selling drugs because he's paying the rent and buying the food. The mother may have a substance abuse problem herself, most likely. Um, or the mother may not. And she may just be working, say, as a hotel maid, uh, as a cook someplace, a waitress. But she just can't support all the children she has. She doesn't want to know about it. But the son's bringing home money and paying the bills. And that's that's mm -hmm. good. And that is how he is taught by the men around him to make money and support your family. Because the other men who go to work every day at McDonald's or I don't know, you know, someplace that is minimum wage, they're, they're not making it. Um, it's hard for them. I know that enough about men to know that it's hard on their ego because they do they're raised to believe that they're to be the providers. And when they can't, it's easier to walk away than to face their failures. We have to let men be humans also in our society. And yeah. we both have, you know, we're all responsible for contributing equally, but we have to first be equal. And until we can be equal, how can you expect us to contribute equally? You had talked a little bit about a compassionate release that you're working on right now or a, a case that you're working with. Um, are you are you able to talk about that at all? I'm really curious about um, or even I just talk, generally. I can just talk in general about it. Yeah. That um, at this point, um, at least where I am, if you are incapable of committing the crime you were incarcerated for, you could, and you have a um, probably less than six months to live, um, that can be applied for. And that goes through the parole board. Um, it helps to have your warden on board, uh, maybe some local politicians to help out. One, uh, your classification supervisor, one of the most important things is that they have a place to go. So you have to have family that can support your needs and keep you until um, your death. Uh, the problem for a lot of these guys is they don't. And you can't go. I don't care if you're bedridden. If you're a murderer, there's no uh, nursing home that's going to take you. Okay. Or if, again, if you have a sex crime, some type of sexual predator, no one's going to take you. So it's limited where you can go. So those are hard to do. But, and people die in prison. And it's, um, it's, it's sad. We're just like any place else. Like, we do have um, specialty prisons with hospice. Our, our, nursing staff and our staff tries to be with them at that time uh we have um inmates that we train uh to be uh patient companions and to help with them and sit with them and um they're extremely compassionate with each other of helping them because they see this could be their life too you know the way their life ends so um it, it yeah, uh, it's it's a tough thing to get done, but um, you can just work on it. A lot of times you work on it, and it's it just doesn't um, happen in time, and they die in prison. Yeah. Um, I like going back to COVID. There, we had some patients with COVID who were extremely ill, who were on ventilators surprisingly to everyone lived they had maybe four months left to serve on their sentence no release they served that right out to the last minute well wow. again uh each state is different but our parole board yeah wasn't interested in considering that yeah yeah um 
Now, when, when we talk about, um, you know, you mentioned, and when I first started volunteering in the jail, one of the things that we had hoped to do, of course, was to provide some massage uh, with the inmates and, or even just to teach them to um, do some work with each other under supervision. And we were able to teach them self-massage, which of course um, they, we had to get through at least five, 10 minutes of just laughing about teaching them to touch themselves. Uh-huh. Uh, and You know, once, once we got through that, they were very interested in, in learning some basic techniques, but I wonder, I mean, it, it is great that we now have Priya and, you know, the Prison Rape Elimination Act, uh, I, I hope is effective, but it also, I mean, we've seen through COVID that what we've already known, which is that people need to be touched and need to touch each other. And it feels like yet another way that the prison system is flawed, that, you know, that that ability to be touched. And I can understand why you don't want inmates being able to just freely touch each other. And um, it probably does prevent all kinds of adverse effect. But there must be some way for us to work through the PREA legislation to allow supervised therapeutic touch to support prisoners. Does that feel like something that could ever happen or that you think would be valuable? Um, do I, it would be valuable. Do I think it would happen? No. And I'll tell you why the manipulation factor. Yeah. And, um, both men and women, um, you know, sex, sex is a big thing. You're deprived of it for a lot of years. And, Everybody knows, you know, you start touching, even though it's therapeutic, people are going to push for more. And for whatever reason, and it, and you can pull up all over the United States, um, different uh, prisons, uh, face pages, and they usually list nurses, officers, teachers that were arrested for inappropriate relationships uh, with uh, prisoners or inmates, and that's a slippery slope. A, you know, it's a slippery slope. Women, yeah. the women prisoners tend to do a little bit better because they'll help each other with their hair. Women aren't as adverse to you know massaging each other's necks or things like that. Where men, again, it's the way society has trained them; they're not going to do that. And yeah. um, yeah, I, I mean, I would love to see it. I would love to. In my prison, I want to bring in foam rollers um, for uh, back pain. Yeah. Teach yeah. them in, in the medical unit how to do it. I wouldn't have nurses rolling their butts across it. I'd have inmates, you know, we teach an inmate and have them doing it. And they said, absolutely not. So wow. um, just, you know. There's some things, um, and I feel like the leadership where I'm at is uh, pretty open to listening to things I'd like to do to kind of make things better. And I had to train myself to be more open to why it wouldn't work because I, I didn't go in there with a the security mind. Sure. And I will give them credit for being willing to listen to what I was trying to do medically because I really do believe they want them to have the care that they need, at least where I'm at. But they also have that security side, which I just wasn't open to. And I, I see it now. I mean, I've learned a lot. <laughs> I really have. So, um, and I try not to let that jade me as far as it. But every time I find myself looking, you know, is this a real need or is this a man, man, oh, sorry, manipulation? I just yeah. can't. I need to get some water here in a minute. Um, it's you have it, you have to look at it every time. Absolutely. What's your experience in the in the jail where you go? Yeah, well, I mean, the guys really they really appreciated learning self massage techniques. Um, you know, I think for them to, we would have to do it with them every week. I, I highly doubt any of them were doing the techniques after we taught them. Um, you know, we're mostly there for mindfulness and meditation, but you know, you can't, your mind and your body aren't actually separate things. So we want yeah. to really give them tools to make being in jail, um, more doable. 
and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, I'd be interested to, um, this has kind of inspired me to actually reach back because we've been in the jail now for a couple of years and we know the staff there and, and, you know, I really appreciate your point as I, I feel typically optimistic in the world, but that openness also has to include the idea that like, here's why this is potentially dangerous and, uh-huh. you know, that there are people who have been in the system a long time. And sometimes that means they're jaded and are just not interested in trying something. But sometimes they're like, yeah, so here's, let me give you like the top 12 reasons why this is probably a slippery slope. Um, But I I do feel like, you know, Priya is one of those things where thankfully it's in place and also what's being lost. And, you know, I, I think moving away from the idea of prison as like the experience of prison as punishment, that being in prison is punishment, being separated from your family and society and not being able to choose your food and all of these things, that is plenty of punishment. We don't have to actually add, you know, deprivation of touch or, you know, some of the things that sort of have become part of being in prison, um, make prison maybe more inhumane than at least over the years, my idea of, of what it means to be a person in prison has shifted. And I, I definitely used to feel like, well, you're in prison. It should be as crappy as, you know, and I'm like, Oh, you're a person who made a bad choice or maybe a series of bad choices that weren't maybe even entirely your own. Like you were saying, I mean, the, you know, societal pressures and what you learn and the culture that you grow up in, all of these things lead to those decisions that ultimately find you in jail and certainly your skin color, but, um, that, our jails could even our most progressive jails could probably be more humane. And, but what's, what's the balance between keeping those people safe, keeping them healthy or even making them healthy. I mean, and how do we use the money that supports the jail system? All those are the questions that lead to what does it mean to take good care of an inmate? Well, I, a couple things. I think the, um, society needs to understand the better care we take of them, the less it will cost them. Okay. Yeah. Cause even when they get out, like I said, you can't get, you know, a house, you can't get this, you can't get that. Um, which sets you up to go commit a crime again to live. But on top of that, there, then there's the disability, um, benefits that you might pay for or social security or, uh, Medicaid. So let's make them productive members of society. But having said that, I also can't imagine what it would be like if my child was raped and murdered by someone. You know, yeah. it would be hard for me to say, yes, I want to make sure that person has good dental care and good food to eat. I, yeah. I'm being very honest here. Mm-hmm. That would be hard. Yeah. Um, and just as my years of living have told me, um, holding on to that hate and that must be such a deep bottomless pit of hate that you would have only harms you too. And I don't know how, how you let go of that. I, I, I don't, but I truly believe you're better off if you do. You don't have to forgive them, but you have to let go of the hate. And part of letting go, maybe maybe part of letting go of that is saying, okay, they don't need to continue to suffer. But some some of these crimes are so horrendous. If and I know you're aware of that, of how people suffered at the end. Um I mean, I, I can't even stand people that do dog fights. I think they should be on death row. So, <laughs> so I mean, we all have our prejudice. Yes. So um, how you, you know, how you let go of that, I don't, I don't know. And it's, it's, a, it's a tough balance. But I think if we all try to, um, no matter, you know, if you have a religion, a higher deity, whatever, I think that they're all based in the same thing is that we try to live the best life we can and be the best person we can. And I think that all of those are also based on the fact that we're supposed to love one another. And the way we show that is by making sure basic needs are met, I think. We could, po- we could possibly begin with taking a look at 
the system and say someone at 18 who shoplifts doesn't end up staying in the system for 20 years. You know, I think that could be a good place to start where we're looking at some of the, the how people end up in prison, you know. And the uh, problem with that, we can loop it all together, is guns in America. Ugh. Because the reason they get those long sentences is because they shoplifted. They didn't really shoplift. In their mind, they did. But they had a gun. Whether they pulled that gun out or not, when they arrested, that gun was on them. And that right there elevates that. And I probably should bring my husband in here who's uh, retired law enforcement because he'd have a different opinion, too. <laughs> We've had a very interesting uh, marriage <laughs> with our views. <laughs> but um, that gun, that gun just elevates that right up there to something else. And you see that more in the black community. And I've asked why. Why do you have to have a gun and you all have this little gangster pose, you know, in your pictures on your Facebook and why? And you know what they, they tell me surprisingly? They're scared. Yeah. They're scared. They're scared of other people in their community. They're scared of, uh, of the police. They're scared of white people. And so that gun makes them feel protected because on TV, everybody seems protected with a gun. And, yeah. and it's a right that they feel wants to be denied to them. So they want to have that right. I would personally like to see us educate them that the more important right is the right to vote. That, you know, let's let's work on having that right and make sure that that's available to you all the time and that your voice does matter. You know, when you write your senator or your congressman, they might see what area of the country or district you're writing from, but your voice still matters because the people that have made real changes have come from those areas also. It's interesting that you said you were surprised that many of them said the reason they have a gun is because they're afraid because that was actually my first thought is that if I were a black person in this country, I probably would want a gun for all the reasons you said. And I, I wish we could educate Americans that everyone having a gun is not how we stay safe. Um, and that we have this idea that, you know, if I have a gun, then I can protect myself. But, you know, I, I was recently talking with a friend who said, you know, I will, a black woman. And she said, I will never have a gun because I don't actually want to trade the hours of my life. It would take to really learn how to own and use a gun. Um, I'd rather just live my life. And she's like, and I know that that means maybe that I don't have a quote way to protect myself, but people go out and buy a gun and then they do the bare minimum necessary to have a license or whatever it is, but it doesn't shoot like it does in the movies. You know, like you were saying, like on TV, you don't just whip it out of your belt and, and actually hit what you're shooting at. And um, it doesn't make any of us safer. And that is another public health crisis that is certainly out there. And, and it, it branches in all these ways, right? It's a public health crisis because it has people incarcerated and it's a public health crisis because people are being shot and it's obviously relates to mental health. I mean, all these pieces come together um, and we, we have definitely abused the right to bear arms. So there we are. <laughs> well, and, and it's funny to me that right now in our society, we want to just pick one of these strings in this giant ball Yes, and, and work on that <laughs> and then say that's, we either say that of all of our problems, or if you take that away, everything's going to disintegrate. And we really need to, people aren't willing to open their mind and see how these strings are tied together. Yes. How they're tied together. I, you know what? If you like to hunt, that's your thing. Don't bring me personally any dead animals, but, you know, <laughs> um, if that's what you want to do. Go, go do it. Do it in a safe manner and you want to eat deer or whatever. You know, I don't, but that's your choice. And I'm all for that choice. But I don't, I truly don't understand why we need these AK, whatever they are, you know, these automatic weapons. I, I don't see how, I don't even see how that's a sport hunting. I would be embarrassed to say that, yeah, I, I shot this deer with, you know. And they are. Yeah. Yeah. 197 rounds in 60 seconds. I mean, to me, that's not a sport, but. Well, and I, I feel like you just, just hit on the, you know, this, it's an odd way for us to wrap up this episode, but sort of not because 
our show is called interdisciplinary. And I think that you, you really just encapsulated why we do this show because all of these things are connected and we can't just solve this and everything will be great. We can't just remove that and everything will be great. We, we have made such a mess that it's hard to know where to start, but we have to start where we are and know that my little piece of this can be helpful, but everybody has to do their little piece. And we have to recognize that we really, it's a hugely knotted ball of yarn and we have to bring all of the disciplines and all the perspectives to be able to make meaningful change in a world and a world that we want to live in. If you take nothing away from this, I'd like you to take away from this, your, your uh, audience. We need to treat all, all of us with respect and as equals. And we need to listen to each person because if everybody has a place at the table and we all bring a solution, not a problem, a solution to the table, I have hope for us. Pick a, pick a string from that ball and see where it takes us. And maybe eventually we'll start to unravel some of these issues. Absolutely. Thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us and sharing your perspective. And thanks for, for the piece of string that you're holding on to and uh, what you're doing to <laughs> maintain hope. Um, this has been another episode of Interdisciplinary, the show where we have those conversations about access, racism, death, ageism, ableism, equity, all the stuff, all the strings that are hanging off this giant ball of yarn. And uh, we hope that you have learned some things. I don't know that we laughed quite as much in this episode as we often do, but uh, that you feel more informed and that uh, maybe you can uh, find that string in your own community to help create a more compassionate and collaborative system of care for all humans. Thanks for listening. Use your social media might and all those things to get out there and like and share. And uh, we'll be back next week with another episode and another exciting guest. Thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, Kathy, thanks as always from British Columbia for joining us and bringing the Canadian perspective. Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. You can send us feedback at info at healwell.org. That's info at healwell.org. New episodes will be posted weekly via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our Facebook page. Thank you.